Good morning. Um, just really curious. Anybody say candy corn? Anybody else? You are alone. <laughs> it is kind of fun to eat the end and then the other end and then the middle. I don't think it really actually tastes any different, but in, the, in your mind it does because it looks different. All right, so uh, I want to talk to you before we get into the sermon today, a little, little family business if you're new with us, if you could bear with us for just a moment. Uh, if I told you in 20 minutes, by uh, giving 20 minutes of your time, you could have a significant impact on the effectiveness of your home church, would you use it? I think you would, yeah. And so that's what I'm asking you over the next couple of weeks, is to take 20 minutes to fill out the survey uh, that we do annually uh, here. Um, and we, we do it because we desperately need, because as a church, we have a, a role in God's kingdom and what God is trying to accomplish, and we desperately need feedback all the time in order to do our work more effectively. And so that's, that's why we do it. Now, there's a danger in doing a survey like this because it's a survey like the one that we do has a danger of, of playing into something that we're always fighting against within ourselves and as a church and as a community, which is to make it about ourselves, uh, to kind of play into a consumer mentality or an entitlement mentality. Surveys can actually play into that. But we take the risk uh, because we need the feedback. It's that, it's that important. So what we do with the survey is we tally the results in the survey. We read through our ministry teams, read through all the comments that apply to their area of ministry, every single one, and analyze them. And then the team leader puts together a, a presentation of what, what did the team learn from this and brings it to the other team leaders. And we talk about those things. And then that becomes one important piece of input as we begin our strategic planning for the following year. So you'll have an email from us, uh, I think this afternoon, uh, if not by tomorrow, that will be asking you to complete the survey. It will take 20 minutes. It's a big commitment, I know, because uh, you, know, you get surveys all the time, but not very many surveys come from your home church. And so uh, I, wanna, I, I wanna ask you if you would, and I wanna thank you in advance for, for taking the time to do that. Over the last, uh, well, since we've been doing this, it has impacted, it certainly impacted my preaching. I read through all the comments. I even break it down according to age categories, everything, and it has impacted in a positive way uh, my preaching. Um, but some of the things that just recently, for example, uh, as, a as, as a result of doing the survey, we discovered that we actually didn't have, and I mean, it sounds crazy, but we didn't have a way that if you wanted to know, uh, when is that event happening that they just talked about? you would have trouble finding when that is and what the time was. Now, we don't realize that as a staff because I just call the person in charge of it, or I text them. And, um, and you realize it, but when you come in contact with us, it's not what's on top of mind, so you may not say it. But we really didn't have a way, realm, uh, unless you were signed up for things from family ministry, you wouldn't be able to find it on our entire realm site, for example. 
And so we started a calendar, a downloadable calendar, and you can break it down according to everything. We have that online now as, as a result of that. So that's one of the kinds of things. Sermon application guide, not a big deal, but last year, remember, as a result of the survey, put the blanks back in and uh, taking away all the blanks and uh, all your purpose for even listening. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, it, it does. It does impact, and in and, and, and big ways too. I mean, it's because of the survey that over years, yet yeah, survey was a, a major factor in in doing more for family ministries and all that sort of thing. So thank you, thank you so much for doing that. Okay, so uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into our our passage. We're in our second movement of our worship, which is listening to God through His Word and. We can't do it, and we can't even hear it deep down in our hearts without the work of the Holy Spirit, so we ask him at this time to do that for us. So this prayer is based on John chapter 1. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son to be the light of the world. He is the true light who brings light to everyone. Your word tells us that whoever follows you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of Christ. As we look to the scriptures, reveal your truth to us. Open our eyes and open our hearts to the work of your spirit. Teach us to follow you. Lead us to walk in your light. Shine through us into the world around us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. It's around page 968 in those. And uh, we, if you're looking at an electronic version on your phone or something, uh, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. If you're brand new with us, hopefully you picked up the New Here brochure on your way in. On the inside is a sermon application guide, and you can pick those up on the way in. There's kiosks on the way in that you can pick those up every week. Uh, you can take notes in there. There are reflection questions. We're about bringing the story of God to life here at Five Oaks. And so it's not just hearing something. It's not even just getting more information about the Bible. It's really about bringing it down into everyday life and bringing it to life in our everyday lives. Um, so we're looking at, uh, we're in a series working our way through over about 12 weeks. We're going to be working our way through what's called the Sermon on the Mount for, I don't know how long it's been called that, but it's, it's a sermon of Jesus that begins in Matthew chapter 5 and runs through the end of ch Matthew chapter 7. And we're in the second week uh, of our series and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we did the first 12 verses. We're not leaving those behind. We're going to come back to them uh, next week. Really important uh, that we come back to them next week. I'll, I'll explain a little bit more at the very end of the sermon uh, why. Uh, but we're going to look at just four verses, and we're going to look at these four verses basically over the next two weeks. And so uh, the, the, the question that we're asking is, how does Jesus want us to impact our world? And, and he answers that uh, really clearly in this passage, uh, although uh, we, we need each other to actually know, okay, so what does that look like in our, our daily lives? So we begin in verse 13, where Jesus has just finished the Beatitudes, uh, which is what the first uh, 10 verses are called or so, 3 through 10. And then he says this to his disciples. He's teaching his disciples, his followers. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp 
and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, uh, four Christmases ago, 2015, Christmas 2015, uh, Starbucks introduced their uh, new red disposable cup for Christmas. And you might remember, you might not remember, there was a guy named Joshua Feuerstein who posted a video on Facebook that went viral um, saying, and I'm quoting him, do you realize that Starbucks wanted to take Christ and Christmas off of their brand new cups? That's why they're just plain red. And he added, do you realize that Starbucks isn't allowed to say Merry Christmas to customers? Now, just a little preview here. Everything he was saying was not true. <laughs> All right, but he thought it was true. And then he explained that when they asked him his name, because they like to write the name on the cup, he said, my name is Merry Christmas. So they have to write Merry Christmas on the cup. And you can, you can see it there. You've got you to give some points to him for cleverness. On top of that, he said he wore his Jesus T-shirt. As part of the video, he shows his Jesus T-shirt. And he says, I wore it to offend them. Those are the words that he uses. And if they had known I was carrying a gun, and he pulls out his gun, he says they would have been really offended. Now, unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that a lot of Christians today think uh, disciples are called to do, that that's what impacting the world for Christ is about. And um, if getting attention was his goal, and it might have been, I don't know what his heart is, but it might have been, uh, he got it. And... Um, he definitely got lots of attention and all kinds of, you know, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of hate messages were sent about Starbucks and to Starbucks as a result of that. But he did it at the expense of truth. Because at least uh, in 2015, Starbucks employees had not been asked to not say Merry Christmas. And... Starbucks had not put anything about Christmas, the word Christmas, on a cup for at least six years before they went to the red cup. So one person put this message on social media as a response to this. If one family in out of every three churches adopted a child from foster care, there would be no orphans in the United States. So please tell me more about how offensive this red cup is. Now, I don't know if this is a fact or not. That's not the point. What I think this person is saying is this whole red cup thing, this whole, this whole fervor over this is a distraction from what's really important. And uh, not to mention how uh, damaging, wrong, and messed up it actually is. So today in our passage, Jesus tells us clearly how to impact the world for him. And we're going to do a deep dive into what he says. Like I said, we're going to, it's four verses, but we're going to spend two weeks on it. And um, so how does Jesus want to impact our world? I think a simple way of summarizing it, I've been using this for years, um, I think it's a help, helpful thing to just, you can kind of go back and remember this, is that Jesus calls us to be in the world for the world, but not of the world. He calls us to be in the world for the world, but not of the world. So we're going to look at the first two parts of that today, and we'll look at not of the world next week. 
So, let's begin. Jesus calls us to be in the world. So look at the verses right before what we just read, where after the final beatitude, verse 10, Jesus expands on it. And he says in verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying many of my followers are going to be insulted, and some are going to be hated, and some are going to be persecuted because they follow me. They actually follow me, meaning they, they actually are learning from me. They're actually living the life, learning to live the life that I've called them to live. In John's Gospel, Jesus says uh, pretty much the same thing to the disciples. He says to the disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And in spite of this, Jesus doesn't ask the disciples to retreat from the world. To be salt of the earth requires disciples to penetrate into the world. To be in the world. Not to be in full retreat from the world. Not to be like setting up fortresses um, and living inside of the fortresses to keep the world out and to keep us out of the world. Jesus absolutely demonstrated this throughout his ministry because of the people that he lived with. I mean, he demonstrated it simply by coming into the world. I mean, that's, that should be enough. But then he, he hung out with people that even their very occupations were occupations where they were violating themselves, they were violating God's commands, they were violating God, they were violating others. I mean, by their very occupations. But those are the people that Jesus spent a lot of time with. Jesus is expecting his followers, his disciples, people who say, I am a follower of Jesus, to be in the world, not in full retreat from the world, not setting up fortresses to keep the world out or keep us from going into the world. Now, um, a lot of Christianity does that. Uh, a lot of Christianity builds fortresses and just tries to keep the world out. When I was in college um, up here at Northwestern, uh, a bunch of guys, about four or five of us, uh, during spring break got into a van and we went down to South Florida. We went down to my house uh, in South Florida and in the Miami area and um, surprised my mom and my grandmother. That's another great story in and of itself. But uh, we're on our way, and we kind of went on, out of our way to save money on hotel because one of the guys said, hey, I know somebody at the school in South Carolina. We could stay there for a night. So one night we spent in South Carolina at a famous, you might say infamous, very large, uh, ultra-fundamentalist Christian school. And uh, so when we got there, uh, we went to an intramural basketball game with the guy who was kind of hosting us, who had made some room for us in, in his room and a couple of friends' rooms to sleep. And we're at the game, and he just kind of said, hey, you know, we used, to, we used to play other teams. We used to play other, other schools in the area, but we don't do that anymore because they would come in here and they would use such foul language. So we only do intramural basketball now. Now, that's one of the classic features of Christian fundamentalism, of any kind of fundamentalism for that matter, is a concern that you might get contaminated by people who don't think like you or act like you or believe what you or share your values. And people with that outlook on Christianity don't end up here at Five Oaks. They get warned off, or better yet, they just they get told, you know, what are the 
right places to go to. So they don't, they don't wind up here. But we are lacking in self-awareness if, at least some of us, if we didn't realize that we have more subtle ways and maybe different reasons for actually doing the same thing that the fundamentalists do as Christians. So we need to ask ourselves, and, and this is not always going to be condemning for all of us or all of you, um, but we need to ask ourselves the question, are almost all the people I personally engage with and I have friends that are my friends, are they almost all Christians or all Christians? And if that's so, that's pretty much the same thing that the fundamentalists do. It just has come about in a different way and maybe for different reasons. I may not, I may not think that I'm going to be contaminated by them, um, but uh, it's certainly easier, certainly more satisfying to have all my friendships be with people who think like I do, uh, who share my values. It's a lot easier uh, on me, my family, so I was raising kids, a lot easier that way. I don't have to work quite as, quite as hard <laughs> with my kids. Now, I can end up in the same place as a fundamentalist, but for a whole host of different reasons. For many of us, we have to be really intentional. Not everybody, but many of us need to be really intentional not to let that happen in our lives. So, I've tried to be intentional about that. As a pastor, you know, I work with a bunch of Christians. I, you know, my work you know, my, extends out of my work. You know, it's, I'm around Christians all the time, and I've tried to be intentional about that. And so this fall we moved from our home where we had been for, I think, almost 23 years. And, uh, and it was, um, you know, as neighbors, as we would go over to neighbors' houses and say, hey, soon you're going to be seeing a for sale sign. Just want to tell you how much we've loved living close to you guys. And we did that with several neighbors. A few we didn't get, get to until the sign was up, but then we eventually got to them. And more than one said, how are we going to get together now without you guys here? Um, do you remember the block party where the firemen, you know, came? Do you remember the times on your deck? Do you remember the happy hours we would have on your driveway? You know, that kind of a thing. And... Um, as I listened to them, it made me feel good on the one hand, but on the other hand, I felt, and I don't know if this is an appropriate comparison, it's, it's not in terms of importance in, in many ways, but I felt kind of like if you've seen the end of Schindler's List when they thank him for all the lives that he saved, and he said, I could have done so much more. And the reality was that, yeah, we were the ones that pulled everybody together, but we did it rarely, really. It stood out because we were the only ones. But we had plans time and time again to do that Three times a year, you know, it was more like once every three years that we wound up doing it. And it's easy to understand why that is. Because life gets busy and it's easier not to and, you know, so, so many reasons. So as we've moved to where we are now, we've, we've really, you know, we've said, hey, let's do better this time. Let's try to do better this time. And so we, we had this open house for our neighbors and some came and... Oh, one of the couples that live right next to us are also new. They said, hey, let's go out for dinner sometime. We said, yeah, that's, we, we were thinking the same thing. Let's do it. And so we went out to dinner. And um, they're of another religion. And we were, we were talking. And we found this book that we all had in common. We had all read years ago. And it was the book that until 
well into my 40s, if anybody asked me, what's your favorite book of all time? This was the book. And so we talked about it, and I told them why I love the book so much. And it's a book representing their religion. And, and so afterwards, the wife texts Lois and says, hey, I want to read that book again. Do you want to read it too? And we can get together and talk. So that's what, that's what I want. Um, but Lois, a few days ago, she goes, hey, let's, uh, let's invite Betty and Nancy um, a little further down in the townhome development. Let's invite Betty and Nancy over for games on Monday night. And uh, and because they've they've leaned in too, they're like, yeah, let's let's get together. And so, you know, I, I said, oh yeah, that sounds great. And then I looked at my schedule and I said, oh, if I do Monday night, I've also got something on Wednesday night. I've also got something on Thursday night. I also have something on Friday night. I also have something on Saturday night. I'm just going to be too busy. You know, I I, I got to have a little downtime in the evening, otherwise I'll wear out. And um, and so I said, Lois, you know, I'm going to be at a board meeting on Thursday. Why don't you get together with them on Thursday? And uh, we'll do something all together another time. And so I was thinking about that as I was working on my sermon. And I'm like, oh, there I go. And I said, Lois, I'm, I'm, I'm available on Monday. Let's do it. And, um, and she said, actually, I'm not. <laughs> and... Uh, she said, let's go for next Monday, which is a good solution, you know. It's let's, let's actually plan a week in advance once and try to get together with some people. So that's, uh, that's what we're doing. So uh, it's hard. I, I understand that. It's so much easier just be around people where it's, it's easy, it's arranged, it's like we share so much in common. And, um, but Jesus says we're supposed to be in the world. And, it, and by his example, it, it doesn't mean... Um, avoiding people who don't share our faith perspective or our values. Doesn't come anywhere close to meaning that. So in the world means engage with people all around us. You can't be salt and light without personal engagement. You have to be in the world. Number two, Jesus calls us to be for the world. For the world. And that's what Jesus is getting at with the metaphor of salt and light. Now we're going to start with light because it's an easy one to understand. Uh, The salt one is a little bit more complicated. Uh, Jesus is clear in his teaching that when he looks at the world, he sees a dark place. Uh, So in John, this is what he tells his disciples. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He is not saying, nor should we say, that there is not There's not beauty and goodness and even light that is coming from the world that that is not even being portrayed by Christians. It's not the only Christians that bring light. Only us bring the light of Christ, but it's not only Christians that, that bring light. But it is a dark world, and it's not very difficult to see that, if we're, you know, if we ever listen to the news, watch the news, read the news, if we, and we don't even have to go to the news, we just have to look inside of our own hearts, right? And we can see that this world is a dark place because we're a part of this world. So the idea in Matthew 5 is that the world is a dark place, and one of the ways that we are for the world 
is by shining a light, and very specifically for us as followers of Jesus to shine the light of Christ into the darkness so that people can see what he says there, can see your good deeds, which are a result of that. See your good deeds and glorify God. Remember, glorify means in part, it's more than this, but it means in part, it's a great, I mean, it's a word you can just put in there because glorify is one of those kind of words like, what exactly does that mean? Delight. It means that, delight, so that other people can delight in God. So salt is, a me- salt is the other metaphor, and it's a, a little bit more complicated because salt had many uses in the first century. We think of salt primarily as a seasoning, uh, and they thought, uh, they, they use salt as a seasoning as well. It's not a modern thing. It's been for as long as salt has existed as a, as a commodity, but that would not be the first thing ancient people not even ancient, anyone before the, um, the invention of refrigeration. <laughs> because salt was a very, very, very valuable commodity all throughout history because of its preservative quality. It, was, uh, it would preserve against decay for meats. It was absolutely necessary if you controlled salt. <laughs> In some ways, you control the world. And so, I mean, you can go to some European cities that are built, or, you know, they were built beautiful because they controlled salt or they controlled the rivers that salt would go through. I mean, it, it was huge. We don't think about that, but that would be the primary way that people think of it. And now most, most scholars say when Jesus says we are the salt of the earth, it probably is a combination, and there's a couple other uses of salt that they talk about, and I don't usually go against most scholars in, in my opinion on things, but I, I do on this one. Um, the parallel is between salt and light, darkness and decay. It's, it's not about we ought to be seasoning the world. We should. There's stuff in the Bible that suggests that we ought to be seasoning the world. I don't think that's the primary meaning here. Now, if you believe it's also seasoning, it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. But understand, it's got to primarily be about preservative for decay as light cuts through the darkness. And together, these metaphors of salt and light are all about being for the world. Jesus is saying disciples are a positive force for good when... We follow him and increasingly live in a way that he has called us to live. And that's a really important asterisk on there. You can put a little footnote there if you want in your notes. <laughs> You've got to, it, it, we can be a force for good when we are actually following him and living in the way that he's called us. And we don't always, uh, every single one of us don't always. So a couple of summers ago, speaking to this whole idea of salt, a Manhattan pastor and author, Tim Keller, spoke at the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast in Westminster Hall in London. And in the audience uh, was the Prime Minister of England at the time. Um, 140 members of Parliament were there, a lot of Christian leaders. And the title of his talk, based on the salt passage in Matthew 5.13, was What, is, what Can Christianity Christianity offer our society in the 21st century. That's what he talked about. And I, uh, as of like noon today, it'll be posted on my website. And uh, henry-williams.net, um, you'll, you can go watch it there. Or you can read it, too. There's a transcript there as well. So, um, interesting 
He does an interesting way, Keller finds an interesting way of saying how Christianity contributes. And uh, it's not where, where I would have gone, and that's because I'm not Tim Keller. Uh, you, you can talk about the hospitals, the you know, hospital systems were started by Christians. You can talk about public education was started by Christians. You can talk about the great universities of our nation were all started by Christians. And you can talk about all those kinds of things. But he went a little bit different. He talked about a professor, a history professor in a, in a major university in the United States who does a, a little thought experiment with his students. Okay, so follow with me on the thought experiment. Answer in your own mind as if you were the student. So this is what he says to the students. He says, imagine it's late at night and you're walking through a dark street and walking towards you is a little old lady and she's got this purse and coming out of her purse very clearly, there's nobody else around coming out of her purse, are jewels and money. They're just like pouring out. It's full of jewels and money. <laughs> and uh, he says, okay, three things for this thought experiment. Three things. She is not going to be able to resist you. She doesn't have a gun hidden there and you know it. Um, she would not be able to identify you. She can't see very well and it's dark. And in this thought experiment, it's not even against the law. Even if you were caught, you wouldn't go to prison. So he would ask, and you can answer this question, would you rob her? Yes or no? And as you can imagine, uh, his students would all say, no, I, I wouldn't. Then he would say this. Let me give you three reasons why. Tell me which one closely approximates your reason for not robbing her. Because it's easy, right? It's not even against the law. You could take her money and go. So what's the reason? A, you don't do it because for you to take money from a person like this would mean that you are a weak person. You attack a weak person, it makes you a weak person. And it would be, make you a dishonorable person. People couldn't respect you. And so out of, out of a sense of self-respect and wanting to be respected by others, and honored by others, you would not do it. Or B, you don't take it because she's a little old lady. You think about her. And you think about what she needs that money for. And you think about the people that might be dependent on that money. And you see something else. And almost 100% of the students would say, B, it's a little old lady. You, you don't do that to a little old lady. That'd be mean, you know, poor thing. So, at that point, he would begin to teach. And he'd say something like, he'd say, A, dishonor, lack of respect, makes you a weak person. That's a reason that a lot of people in the world would give as their primary reason. It's, it's so, sociologists or anthropologists would call it a self-regarding ethic. And it comes from a shame and honor culture. And shame and honor culture has throughout history been the primary way that society is held together, through shame and honor. And in a shame and honor culture, honor is what really matters, and strength is what really matters, and respect is what really matters. B is an other-regarding ethic. And it's an ethic of love. Now, we're swimming in the pool. We're fish, and we, can't, we, we, we don't notice we don't notice the water. We're humans. Let's put it that way. We're humans. And we don't notice the air around us, right? We just breathe it. This is the air that we breathe. That's the kind of point that this guy is making. You just got to stop for a second and say, you mean there's another way of thinking about this? Besides, it's just a little old lady. <laughs> and professors, yeah. 
And the professor says, I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. I assume the professor's not a Christian. So I don't care even whether you believe in God. It doesn't really matter to me. But the point is, you have been shaped by Christianity. He's trying to make a history lesson. He says, your moral sense is not a moral sense of an Eastern or ancient shame and honor culture in which strength is the most important thing. Shame and honor culture, it dominated. Dominated the European continent, even, until monks went as missionaries, and they brought this other regarding ethic of love. The people in the European continent thought they were crazy. How can you hold a society together without shame and honor? And they're like, well, in the end, the other regarding ethic of love actually won out in Western society. And so the professor's making the point, Keller's making the point. Christianity has been salt in society for a very, very long time, even if you don't even realize it. Because that did not come from anything but Christianity and the Bible. Doesn't come from evolutionary bio biology. Doesn't. It doesn't come from philosophy, not unless it's had a lot of contact with Christianity. So there's a Canadian philosopher, I've, I've mentioned him before, Charles Taylor. Keller mentions him, he says, Taylor makes the case that while modern society still holds, in many ways, to this high moral ideal of love, it, it looks different than the biblical one, but still holds to the high mor this high moral ideal of love found in the Bible, it has abandoned the source of those ideals. See, hold the ideal, but the Bible is just an ancient document and whatever. Now, I'm going to add to this. You've heard me say this before. We'll be saying it a lot more throughout the series. Mark Sayers, who's a pastor and author, he says what, what describes modern secular society is that we want the kingdom without the king. We want the values of Jesus that he brought about love and care and that kind of a thing. But we don't want the king and all the other stuff that he brought. And so, um, and Jesus is, is the king. So, moral ideals without the source of those moral ideals. So Keller went on with Parliament, he says, so when Westerners like us, when we meet up with people from a shame and honor culture who value respect and honor and power more than love and service, all we can do is yell at each other. We can't go to any source, all we can do is yell at each other or demean the other person. Well, if you were just educated, you'd see that love is important. And sometimes people on the outside of Christianity, they actually see this better than a lot of us as Christians actually see it. Like this professor. I knew a guy that saw this. Um, I've talked about him, it's been a few years since I've talked about him. But I, years ago, I, I got to be friends with or more than acquaintances with a guy over at Caribou downtown here at, uh, in Woodbury, and I would uh, go in there a lot to work, and, and I would, uh, this guy was always in there, and, and one time I just started a conversation with him, and I discovered, uh, we then had a series of conversations, probably for at least a year, year and a half, and then he disappeared. I never, I don't, I don't know whatever happened to him. I never seen him around. Maybe he moved. I have no idea. But he, um, he had three passions in life, online gambling, soccer, and atheistic philosophy. 
Those were his three big passions. So that's what we talked about. Um, so uh, more than once he told me, he said, I am not one of those angry atheists who thinks Christians are bad, bad people and we've got to get rid of them. He, he said, I actually appreciate Christians because I know when a person's really a Christian, they're living by Christian values, I don't have to worry about them trying to take advantage of me or robbing me or knocking me over the head. I, I, I think they're actually good. I think Christians, like you, are good for society. <laughs> See, he understood this. You know, kind of like that professor. He understood this better than, than a lot of people. So, a lot of Christians. So, the guy who went after Starbucks for the red cups, let's go back to him for a moment. Let's say, just for a thought experiment, let's say he was correct that Starbucks didn't want to put Christ or Christmas on their cups, and let's say they told all of their employees, and there might be some truth to that. It's just it wasn't factually correct. It hadn't, actually hadn't done that. There might be truth to that now, but there wasn't then. And so he, uh, let's say he's factually correct. Was he, in pulling his stunt, was he being in the world? Say, yeah. Okay, you got that part. But was he being for the world? Now, I can't, I can't get into all of his motives. I can't go into his heart and into his mind to get all, all of his motives. And There may have been some, some good motives in there mixed in with some other ones. But his words betrayed at least that part of him that is not for the world. I mean, he literally said, I wore my Jesus shirt in there to offend them. That's not trying to win someone over. That's not trying to share the light of Christ. I think we can see that, right? Maybe in some, some way he was thinking he was preserving society. Enough pressure would maybe make Starbucks put Christmas back on their cups and that, that would change the world. I don't know. Um, but he seemed completely unaware, completely unaware of the source of the ideals that he said he was defending. Jesus, he was not acting like Jesus is his king. He was not living the kind of life that you see in the Beatitudes. He's not demonstrating that. I don't know about the rest of his life, but he wasn't demonstrating, not, not in that video. It's like those kinds of things, the source of what he said he was trying to defend, the source of that was as far as you can tell, watching the whole video, nowhere on his radar. In the world, for the world. In the world, for the world. So how do we live in the world? Don't worry, I'm not going to start another sermon here. <laughs> That's next week. Um, it's through getting a little bit more specific about what it means to be salt and light. And I'll give you a little preview. The specifics are in verses 3 through 10. They're in the Beatitudes. It's a whole different value system than the rest of the world. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that became fully human. 
in order to enter our world. You came into poverty and you came into pain and suffering and you did that for us. You demonstrated your love, you demonstrated your goodness while at the same time demonstrating your justice and demonstrating your holiness. Father, help us to shine the light of Christ and to be the kind of people that can be in the world for the world. Teach us what that looks like. We pray this in Jesus' name.